So last week I talked about the gospel, and one of the things that I asserted is that the traditional message of the gospel, which is basically uh, repentance, forgiveness of sin, and salvation, is not very effective in the Western world today. The reason for that is not because there's a problem with the gospel, it's a problem with the receivers. People today don't have much awareness of sin. I mean, some people do, of course. But lots of folks don't have any awareness of sin. There are industries that exist to tell them that these aberrant behaviors are just fine. And in fact, they're to be celebrated. So there's no fear of hell, and there's really not much interest in heaven. So when you go out and you preach the traditional gospel, it doesn't work very well. What I said is that the primary source of suffering in the world today is alienation and lack of purpose. So have people going around with their phones because that's their basic source of connection and they're terrified of being disconnected from people and they really don't have a purpose in life, which is why you have so many people sitting in their basement playing video games and stuff like that. A partial answer to that was to give people a realization that there is somebody who delights in you, which is God. And he does delight in you and he does want to have a relationship with you and furthermore the new heaven and the new earth is actually a very interesting place because we're designed to do stuff as I said there's an old movie black and white days for those who remember black and white movies one of these things where a guy dies and goes to heaven and heaven was depicted as a infinite set of bleachers where everybody sits in the bleacher and praises God forever and the point of the movie was that was really kind of boring to the guy that went there and I would quite frankly find it kind of boring too but that isn't the biblical definition of what the world to come is there's in fact stuff to do so that was last week and I just want to give you that for background because I'm going to build on that today one of the problems with the modern church is their focus is on salvation and worship. Now, salvation and worship are a big deal, but if that's what you get every Sunday, you're missing a big chunk of what God wants you to do. If you go into a modern church, sanctification is presented mostly as refraining from sin. So your process of sanctification is you figure out what your sins are and you quit doing that stuff. And of course the nice thing about the modern church is the definition of sin is flexible. So you can shop around till you find a church whose definition of sin matches what your definition of sin is and you can go to that church and you can feel really good because you're not sinning because the preacher told you you weren't sinning. With that background I'm going to switch gears. Today is the 17th of Tammuz on the rabbinic calendar. On the Kararite calendar, the 17th of Tammuz will be on Monday. So what's the 17th of Tammuz, and why do I bring that up right now in this context? Well, the 17th of Tammuz is the day when Moses came down from the mountain and broke the tablets of stone. It's also the day when Israel worshipped the golden calf. And in 423 B.C., the daily sacrifices were stopped during the siege of Jerusalem because they ran out of animals. Jerusalem was under siege. They couldn't bring animals in to sacrifice, so that was the last day they sacrificed. 
and that was before the northern kingdom was sent into exile. In 69 BC, the walls were breached by the Romans. The temple was then destroyed on the 9th of Av. So this period between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av is a period of mourning, remembrance, because it is the period that memorializes, if you will, a series of tremendous disasters in the history of the Hebrew people. So that starts, depending on what calendar you're using, either today or Monday, and it will go to the 9th of Av. And the 9th of Av, of course, is the day when both the first and the second temples were destroyed. Now, why do I say that? Because it's the beginning of a period when Israel is sent into exile. And exile, in God's economy, is therapeutic. So when Israel gets sent into exile, they get sent into exile because of something that they are doing, and they get sent into an exile that is designed to correct that. The first exile, of course, is when Jacob and his sons go down to Egypt. What they learned in Egypt is you got to take care of the sojourner and the stranger because they were strangers in Egypt. So they go into exile to Babylon for idolatry. You guys want to do idols? Fine. We'll do idols for a while. And they get sent to Babylon. And when they come out of the Babylonian exile, idolatry is sort of wrung out of them. The exile that they are currently in, which they have been in for 2,000 years, they say, and I agree, was caused by baseless hatred. Basically, too many scorpions in one bottle. They couldn't get along. So God says, you guys can't get along with each other? Fine. I will send you out and we'll do baseless hatred for a while. And so you have pogroms, you have the Holocaust, you have the burning of Jewish books, you have all of the tribulations and trials over the last 2,000 years and in that process what Israel has done, the Jews since Judah is the one we recognize right now, what Judah has done is said, huh we got sent into exile for baseless hatred, I guess we need to figure out what we should do about that and what they have developed is a course called Musar Musar is at least a thousand years old as some of you know, we've done Musar here in the past, about four or five years ago. We're going to do it again starting next Shabbat. What I'm going to suggest to you is that's one of the reactions to the exile they're in. How do we learn how to get along together? How do we learn how to walk humbly before our God? How do we do that in a practical way? And what Musar is, is a practical set of steps that you can go through to help you work that out. So I was reading a Musar guy and you all know that in Deuteronomy there are two passages that talk about circumcision of the heart. The first one is in Deuteronomy 10 and Moses is saying to Israel, all right you guys are going to go into the land. You're going to go out of the desert no longer are you going to have God right in the midst of your camp. You're going to be spread out over the whole land. And if you're going to last in the land, what you need to do is you need to circumcise your heart, which is to say you need to learn to follow God's rules, you need to learn to worship Him properly, you need to learn to get along, all those kinds of things. And if you do that, your time in the land is going to be very long. If you don't do that, the land is going to spit you out. 
And then you go to Deuteronomy 30, which is after the land has spit them out and God has brought them back into the land, and it's a statement of the new covenant. And what it says there is, after all of this, God will circumcise your heart. So there's two circumcisions of the heart. First one, you do. Second one, God does after all the exile and return. Now, I have always taught that, okay, you're supposed to try and do the best you can, but at the end, only God is really going to be able to do it properly. And I think that's a pretty good teaching. However, the Musar rabbi that I'm reading has a very different view of it, which I really like because I'd never thought of it that way. What the Musar rabbi says is, if you circumcise your heart, it is a whole lot less painful than if God does it for you. Because ultimately what happens is you get so far out on a limb that the correction has got to be pretty severe. And so if you get to the point where God has to take care of it, it's going to be much more traumatic than if you take care of it yourself. I had never quite thought of it that way, but I certainly agree with it. The other thing this guy said, which I have talked about in the past, but not quite this way, and it was really an interesting revelation to me, is God chose not to make us perfect. Think about that for a minute. Is God capable of making us perfect? I think so. So the fact that we're not is because he chose not to make us that way. And why do you suppose that is? It's a really interesting question. Part of it is striving for perfection gives you a purpose in life. Remember I said that part of the problem and the reason that the gospel is not selling today is people are wandering around without purpose and they're alienated. So if you've got something to do in your life, it gives you a purpose. That's sort of thing one. Everybody know what bonsai is? Ray does bonsai. It literally means planting in a tray. And there's you know, beautiful little ceramic trays and you've got these little trees that are planted in them. What do you call a bonsai practitioner, a gardener? I mean, I, I don't know what the term is. We'll still use gardener for lack of something better. I say, Ray has the temperament to do this. I don't. I just love to watch it. It's beautiful stuff. So you have these little trees that are growing in little ornate pots. And the gardener has a vision of what he wants that tree to look like. He has ways of making that tree look the way he wants to. So he can wrap wire around the branches to get them to curve various ways. And he can clip parts off of it. And he can turn it one way to the sun. And he can do all sorts of stuff to try and make this tree look the way he wants. And you know the whole thing is about this big, little tiny forest in a, in a pot. The thing that makes bonsai so interesting is the tree has a say in how it looks. The gardener has an idea of what he wants it to look like, and he does what he knows how to do to make it look that way, but the tree is part of this. And so it's a conversation between a living tree and the gardener. And the gardener tries to push it to grow one way, and the tree reacts to that, but it reacts to it in its own way. Painting, for example, is a skill, not one that I have. Ray also has that particular skill. But the painting doesn't resist you. Here, when the tree is arguing with you and resisting back and forth, you're dealing with something that's alive. 
I want you to go this way. And the tree says, well, I don't quite want to go this way. I want to do something different. So what it becomes then is a collaboration. Now think of that in terms of you and God. God made each of you. And as I've said many times, I'm not at all like Tino because if I was like Tino, then one of us would be redundant. He made each of us because he has some idea of what he wants you to grow into. But you have a say in that process. And what he does is he puts things in your life and he nudges you. It's sort of like Ray wrapping a a branch with a piece of wire to get it to go this way. And God will do that with you. He'll wrap wire around you and get you to go that way. But when you go that way, you've got a say in what you do. So it's very much like a conversation. And he could have made you perfect. He chose not to do that. Because he wants to engage in a conversation with you on what it is you're finally going to look like. And if you don't engage in that conversation with him, you've wasted a whole lot of what he has put into you. And what Musar does is it gives you a way of engaging in that conversation so that you're making progress in a direction that's pleasing to God. That's what this discipline does. So one of the things about this is everybody preaches against sin, right? I will suggest to you that sin is a feature, not a bug. It's a software term. When software behaves unexpectedly, the developer looks at it, oh, that's a feature, it's not a bug. God expects you to sin. And what he's done is he has given you directions, a manual, the Torah, and he's given you the ability to repent so that you can correct yourself. So as you go through life, everybody sins, we all do. The question then becomes, when you recognize finally that you were off somewhere in sin and you're someplace you don't want to be, what do you do about it? And again, God gives you a way to come back. Anybody ever raised a two-year-old? You expect him to make messes. But what you're really, really strong about is do not stick the fork in the electrical socket because that'll kill you. God gives us in our Torah all right, you're going to make all sorts of mistakes, but do not do this because you cannot recover from that. Don't murder anybody because at that point you can't recover because you're going to be stoned. So as God is raising us like you would raise a two-year-old, he says, all right, keep the fork out of the electrical socket and that kind of stuff. But beyond that, what he's trying to do is have a conversation with you on what you're going to grow into. And that's what Musar does, is it gives you a way of engaging in that conversation in a productive way. Because lots of people just go through their lives banging from one thing to the other, and quite frankly, lots of churches don't give you guidance on what to do. They simply says, keep the fork out of the socket and you'll be okay. And, And oh, by the way, worship God. All those things are good. I'm not suggesting they're not good. I'm saying they're incomplete. And what the Jews have done, because of their exile and because of the fact that they are trying to correct the reason that they got set into exile, and they really care about this stuff, so they've studied it. How do we fix the reason we're in exile? Now, one of the mistakes you can make if you decide to go through Musar is to regard it as self-help. 
you know, there's 10,000 self-help books in Amazon or any place else. That's not what this is. As you learn to live life the way God would have you live it, you will find that your life goes much better. But that's not the reason to do it. That's a side effect, a benefit. What Musar does is it prevents you from getting in God's way. So, back to the gospel. How do you talk to people out in the world to get them to understand what it is that God is doing for us and would do for them if they would like? Part of the problem that we have is because of the defects in us, we very often get in our own way. Anybody ever said, I'll never go to that church that's full of hypocrites? And of course, the standard preacher thing is, one more is always welcome. But understand that if you can get yourself to the point where they can't level that accusation at you, your witness is more effective. So if you can witness to somebody and they don't look at you and say, well, yeah, but you cheat in your business. Or yeah, but you, or yeah, but you, or yeah, but you, whatever. If you can get rid of those things, what you've done is you have made your witness far more effective. And that's what Musar helps you do. It helps you get that stuff cleaned up so that God's light can shine through you for other people. In other words, it gets you out of God's way. And of course, in the process, things go really well for you. I'm not suggesting that there's no benefit in there from you, because there very much is, but that's not the purpose. So, what I'm suggesting to you is Musar is practical sanctification. It's a good way to describe it. It is practical sanctification. It gives you practical things to do to help you in the process of sanctification. And in that process, you become a more useful instrument in God's hands, which is a good thing. But ultimately, you become the little bonsai tree, and he becomes the gardener in your life. And what he does is he tries to shape you into something that he regards as beautiful. But you get to participate in that conversation. You are not simply a piece of clay that he molds around and puts two eyes in and he's done. You are a living part of a conversation. And it's a conversation with someone who loves you. And it's a conversation with someone who delights in you. And it's a conversation with someone who wants you to be all that he hopes you will be. But it is very much a conversation. And if you approach it that way, it gives you purpose and meaning in your life. Because you've got something that you're doing now that is really important. And it's really important to God. Because if it weren't important to God, he wouldn't have done it.